Hey, it's Josiah. Before we get started with this episode, I have something very special to share with you. You know, we've delved deep into what it means to be an Enneagram 5 together for the past few years, especially with our friend of the show, Sam Greenberg, or as many of you know her, the Enneagram expert. And now we want to go even deeper with you. We've worked together with Sam to craft an online workshop exclusively for type 5s to help you unlock the secrets of connection with every Enneagram type. This is not just another generic workshop. It's a deep dive into understanding and nurturing relationships tailored specifically for your unique perspective. Imagine getting practical, actionable insights on connecting with each of the nine Enneagram types all through the lens of a type five. Sam's going to guide you on how to build meaningful relationships, sharing strategies and insights specifically designed for fives. I've seen firsthand how Sam's insights can transform understanding and communication. And I'm so excited to partner with her to bring this exclusive workshop to you. Whether you're looking to deepen current relationships or navigate new ones, this workshop is a game changer for fives seeking genuine connection. Spots are limited, and trust me, you don't want to miss this. So head over to Enneagram5.com connection to secure your place and begin your journey towards richer, more authentic connections. Once again, go to Enneagram5.com connection or visit the link in the description to get your ticket to the workshop today. special guest this man nay 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 this this (laughs) mythical creature (laughs) we've talked about on the on the podcast it's been a long time coming really we've said we were going to have him on and this this tonight's after hours very well may be edited into an actual episode later depending on how well it goes and if he says anything remotely interesting (laughs) (laughs) yes no pressure so without further ado my brother cody's brother Jesse, Jesse Harris. <laughs> What's up, brother? How's it going? I'm here to thoroughly disappoint from the bowels of Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Thanks for that lovely introduction. You're, You're welcome. welcome. You're welcome. It's we only the best for you. So we we had a bunch of different things we thought about talking about tonight. Nothing was ever fully decided. So um, we kind of I thought maybe we could just start with uh, maybe telling everybody what it is that you do, because I think actually we'll probably get some questions from that um, in a room full of fives. Um, so, yeah, like what is it? What's, what is it you're doing in Boulder, Colorado? So I'm currently at CU as a graduate student. So, yeah, I would say I spend most of my time thinking about species. And so let me let me uh, maybe take one step back that I'm in an uh, evolutionary biology program. So most of what I think about and do has to do with um, what we would consider macroevolutionary processes. So speciation, extinction, large-scale change over time. And um, there's some broad topics and there's some very narrow topics. So um, yeah, so speciation biology, there's another uh, chapter of the dissertation that deals with biogeography, which is really just the distribution of species across space and time. So essentially, why are species where they are? 
but why were they where they were also, mm. right? So we think about the current moment, but also in the past. There's uh, another part of the field that does try to deal with projections into the future and a lot of climate change research. I'm not really into that as much, but um, mostly just because the models are a little too above my head. However, a lot of what I do is uh, phylogenetic in nature. So evolutionary biology typically involves a lot of phyl phylogeny. So uh, if you've ever seen something, it's a graphical network which allows us to understand relationships among species. And so, yeah, primarily what I'm interested in is uh, systematics, the understanding the relationships of species, looking at phylogenetic trees and what we can actually do with them. So we can actually learn a lot about the species that we're studying just based on like trade evolution, ecology, biogeography, and all of that ties into uh, what we can know by looking at the current set of things and uh, inferring where they came from in the past. And uh, so I guess in, 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 in a very broad sense, the same way that a geologist would look at rocks and be able to sort of tell you how the features came about, we look at biological species and try to infer where they came from in the past um, using like my, my primary tool is genetic data, but we also use morphological data, and ecological data, and biogeographic data. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of, lot of uh, species diversity questions. But then more in, in a narrow sense, I also um, spend maybe about 20% of my time with population biology. So it's more rather than thinking at the macro scale across lineages, you know, thinking about, you know, like the same species, like, you know, homo sapiens, but I deal with lineages of plants. And, um, and so there's a lot of things that this, at the, at the population biology level, um, a lot of processes take place that are of interest to evolutionary biologists, but also you can answer and ask some really cool questions about what's happening right now. And so uh, some aspects of that get into species management. So I deal with some rare endangered species and and uh, look at some processes of how that how their populations are being affected by human activity. Um, just ecological change, evolutionary change, and uh, how to best preserve um, some of the biodiversity that we are constantly losing. Huh. So, so there's some practical applications and some, but I probably spend more of my time looking at mathematics papers um, and being a bit more theoretical than I care to. <laughs> what would you say? <laughs> oh yeah, I'm tracking 100%. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm also Googling phylogenical. Phy phylogenetic and so, so so yeah you you can uh there so there is a phylogeographical which is dealing more with the population biology so biogeographic right so i mentioned the distribution of species across space and time so why is a species in you know we have we have what's called uh eastern north american eastern asian uh floristic disjunction so with plants there's a really cool pattern where you can be in the, the forests of Eastern North America, right? So you might be like, just let's just say you're in the Shenandoahs in Virginia, for instance, or just in a random forest in Pennsylvania. And you're looking around and you see things like uh, sweet gum and you see hickories, you see oaks, you see some maples, right? You know, you're just, you're, you're just, you're, you're random trees, but you also see this with like little herbs that are in the understory. Well, then you can take a flight over to Europe and you might see a completely different suite of species. Some of the same genera families, like, you know, the taxonomic hierarchy, you can see some of the larger groups, other species sometimes, um, 
you know, and, and a lot of things are pretty familiar, but you can walk into a forest in Eastern Asia and feel completely at home. And it's almost surreal where a lot of the same species are there, but they're not really found in between. So it's, uh, you know, it's just a good fun example of a question of why are they in Eastern Asia and in Eastern North America and not, you know, nowhere in between? So that's actually a question that has been studied at ad nauseum to some extent. And uh, we've learned some cool things, but um, so we, yeah, so like you have a biogeographic pattern, but, uh, you can actually study that at the population level. So you, instead of dealing with multiple species, you can, you can call that phylogeography instead. So it's good fun. <laughs> Is there anything from your work that, um, you've learned that surprised you all the time? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess one of the more pertinent things is just in general, if you walk in, I mean, this happens with everyone's daily lives and it's just a matter of paying attention, but it is on display a bit more obviously, I think, than it is just as we have our own revelations about learning things, but at least learning in a more formal way, it is very neat to walk in with a question, be able to run some experiments or take some data and be able to statistically analyze it and learn something at all, just to be able to learn anything is, I think, ultimately philosophically surprising, but more or less, it's really interesting because it gives me the opportunity to come in and learn, be the first person in the world to learn something. So there are things nearly every day where it's a tangible effect where I get some result and uh, we can talk about, about what it means to actually know anything, but within sort of the <laughs> statistical probability or the likelihood of actually, you know, some event actually taking place and us actually being able to understand anything about it, it is really neat to glean some sort of information and realize that if I die right now, this information is gone mm. because it's just a neat feeling to realize like, oh, I'm the first person to see this. It, so is it like as a as a five yeah, hopefully everybody's listened to the podcast enough to know that when i've talked about jesse before that um he's a five so as a five i would find like you didn't start in this in this career you didn't start wanting to do this when you were i don't know before you finished high school like what did you think you were going to do like what, what were you what were you feeling drawn to at that time that you were like okay maybe this is what i'm going to do when i grow up you know um i think more when i was a bit younger, I think there's actually a, a streak of adrenaline junkie. Um, <laughs> yeah. And there was always a sense that maybe it would be some sort of service job, um, mm. you know, where, whether that was sort of, I don't know, fire, police, some sort of medical field, something that would provide, I guess, a, a decent amount of stimulation. Sure. Yeah. Do you, and yeah. Do, you, do you think that that was the case because of the fact that because you've always been the kind of person, and I've talked about this in the uh, in the podcast also, that like you're just you're a particularly intelligent person, and usually one of, if not the smartest person in the room. I feel like that that would that could, that has its pros and cons always, right? And I feel like one of those cons can easily be that you're all. It, it would be very easily to become complacent or bored in general life, right? Like just things get like 
more boring and or boring quicker maybe you you you're bored with them quicker and want to move on i could see how you've always kind of had that streak of adventure and wanting to kind of push boundaries and see what you can or can't do i mean you used to do some pretty insane things on any kind of set of wheels <laughs> um it, it, i'm the re you're the reason i i know how to drive stick and definitely have because of you driving like an insane person it, behind a wheel you saved our lives one night so like from uh you know people trying to kill us which is a true story that i think we've talked about yeah we told that uh, story yeah and yeah. so you know i think that that's part of uh i think that's part of part of who you are but i wonder if i do i mean do you think you take less risks i'm getting ahead of myself but i would wonder if you take less risk or feel this the n less need to get that adrenaline rush now that you're in a job in a career in a world where you're constantly being simulated intellectually and you know philosophically all these all these boxes are getting checked for a five that's like such a classic i mean you were like the quintessential five right like you do exactly what they say fives would do like you're a scientist you do you research you do all these things and because of that it actually comes with some sense of adventure because you're always always you're also out on a motorcycle in the desert you go camping and find these plants like you do a lot of the things that you've always wanted to do but it's kind of written into what you do so i mean would you think that that was part of it in the early days like you were kind of drawn to those things because you didn't really know what you wanted to do maybe and you were just bored or complacent and you were looking for that i guess my first inclination is to just say that i just spend more time with certain topics because of the freedom that being a student has allowed me to do. Um, I think if you were to spend just as much time reading the same things I read, I don't necessarily think that we would end up in two very different places. So I don't, yeah, I don't necessarily think that there's some sort of higher innate intelligence there. I'm just, I just have spent more time on a few topics than other people that are so obscure that they can maybe come across that way. However, as someone uh, who did you your entire life, I can promise you, you, you absorb knowledge in a different way. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And hold on, hold on. We're, we're missing, we're skipping over the whole, the whole part where he's basically like a musical savant. And I would watch this right. guy like pick up any instrument and just intuitively start playing it. Yeah, just figure it out. Which I, right. I don't so, know. So, so with my ego thoroughly stroked, um, <laughs> I, I, did, I think if anything, I have just always had a very innate curiosity, um, which I do think is a pretty human trait that you really do see among almost anyone that you meet. It's just a matter of what that thing is. And it just happens to be that by whatever means and reason or luck um, that I think that the, there are some characteristics that I, I believe are associated. So I am not as ver well versed in Enneagram in the Enneagram as you all are. I have done a little bit of like, honestly, when I first heard that this podcast was happening, the first thing I did was just jump into some web of science, some Google Scholar and actually look up some papers. And I found some things, uh, universities in New Zealand, I believe uh, there's a researcher, uh, Anna Sutton or something maybe in, in, in the New Zealand university that has done a decent amount of Enneagram work. Some other papers, I was looking for validation yeah. for, for uh, you know, because every time I hear boxes and personality, I get pretty uh queasy and it was actually very interesting to see because you know as an evolutionary biologist you know one of the the most recent papers that my lab put out that i was lucky enough to be a part of was um dealing with um evolutionary convergence and i know i'm, I'm rabbit trailing a little bit i hopefully will 
make a make a loop back around to some of your questions here. But um, it's just interesting to see. Um, you know, the, the paper dealt with uh, convergence, meaning like evolutionary independence. So rather than something being a trait that a lot of things share based on ancestry, right? So if a, if a trait evolves once, then all of the descendants sort of have that in their genetic blueprints and can make use of that new feature, you know, right? It's, it's, a, it's a pretty common thing that we you know, most humans are born with the same features and can do the same things, but also so are, you know, like the great, the whole clade of the, you know, primates and great apes, right, um, in general. But what we were dealing with was, you know, sort of instances of where all of these things uh, emerge. Um, so like, um, if you think of like a, being a, a succulent, right, that's a, we, we think of that as a dry adapted plant. Uh, people love to have them on our shelves, but, you know, you can find plants that have evolved that succulent habit, plant habit, um, multiple times across the scale. And so the idea is that we consider that to be some type of what we would call a syndrome, an evolutionary trait syndrome, meaning that it's some suite of features that evolved multiple times in response to some sort of environment. But, you know, what we were dealing with was, are these things even real? Because we can see patterns. Humans are pattern machines. That's what we do. If you see just white noise, like true randomness, we can oftentimes see things and pull meaning from things. And, you know, we are basically just cognitive bias machines, essentially. And and so seeing these patterns are what we're so good at, which can be an incredibly helpful and useful tool. Um, however, there's just a lot of things that no matter how nebulous something is, we can try to make a pattern occur. And so we were sort of challenging that concept within like our field um, about how to study and how to actually recognize when these patterns are useful and when they may not be as useful. And so with that mindset, I was really concerned or thinking a lot about, you know, these sort of suites of behavioral traits across people. And if you're going to lump them into one, two, three, nine, you know, the, yeah, it, it's, in, it's an interesting concept, but it actually was really reassuring to actually see that there have been some pretty consistent behaviors across populations. I was actually, I'm sure you've maybe talked, spoken with a psychologist or two, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. If you've been able to hear, yeah, then I'm, I'm out of the loop there, but some great things happening. So, um, yeah, they'll be on the next season. It's not out yet. So you, hey, only, wonderful. Only these, only these people, these lovely people that are joining us tonight have heard it actually. Oh, great. It's really fun though. And it seems to be pretty prominent in the psychology yeah. world, but it's, it's one, one comment I have to say is you use Google differently than any of us do. Probably we should, we could learn a lot. You need to, we need to do a whole lesson on just how to use Google for fives, because I think people would appreciate how you can get to directly to like research papers and studies being done. And like, <laughs> you're like, I use Google and got in all this stuff. And then all these studies in Australia. And I'm like, wow, you Google scholar. So yeah, Google, Google scholar, scholar is, uh, yeah, it's sort of the upside down of Google where, uh, most things are actually <laughs> nice and you don't just end up in some sort of like horrific, like, I don't know, pornography dungeon. I don't know. I'm sure the algorithms have done a much better job at filtering all, all of that stuff by this point, but yeah, no, instead you just, you find yourself in like some terrible corner of the internet where everybody's just yelling at each other and you've got trolls and yeah, yeah, it's a uh, terrible place. I, I just remember at one point I had searched a blueberry and somehow uh, blueberry, uh, like, I don't know, 65 results down 
all of a sudden turned into something quite nefarious. So <laughs> <laughs> everything becomes nefarious if you go too far down. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, it, yeah, it's, it's really nice too. And there's, you know, maybe there's, there's a lot to be said just, I think in general, um, about what it means to take in information. I think that's probably one of maybe one of the most pertinent topics of our age, um, what it means to actually take in information and, and to understand, right? Because I mean, all the information is available for all of us. I mean, I say that like all obviously paywalls excluded, which yeah, is a problem with academia. However, um, yeah. you know, just with, with, with the internet in general, right? It's like, uh, you know, we have all of this information at our fingertips and what do we do with it? It's a, it's a pretty bizarre time to be alive, right? <laughs> I, I spent a total of maybe 10 minutes on TikTok and I, I can say that the internet's a weird, weird endeavor. But it's a it's a project maybe worth doing. But um, I think yeah, to maybe try to stay a bit more on topic, you know, how how we at least swallow and congeal all of our information into something that is actually internally and externally consistent is yeah, that's very difficult. Even even definitely, I mean, I mean, I would almost say it's amplified within the science, like within sciences, because there's a lot of things that we can learn. But, you know, I was, I was actually um, talking about this, which was um, just about what it means to try to run this experiment of science, right? Where we're trying, the whole point of science is not this fact-gathering endeavor, but it's really more just a tool by which we learn things in which we attempt to take our bias out of what we learn as much as possible. And, but the funny thing is, right, the people who are running the machine are these biased machines, and so, you know, it's, it's, I think it's actually impossible to completely eliminate that from the equation, but it's at least so far our best attempt to try to get it learning anything. So I believe a, there were maybe uh, a handful of questions I left on the table <laughs> from like five, 10 minutes ago. No, there, there's a couple of things I wanted to touch on, um, as far as any real uh, research, uh, the Enneagram is a, uh, Enneagram is a very young field. I, yeah. yeah, I believe yeah, some of the, some of the older papers that I saw were still in only in the eighties. Yeah. And we had, um, Maybe 70s. so one of the things that we kind of put a pin on that I'd like to come back to is you, you mentioned, you know, how do we actually know anything? Can we mm -hmm. talk about that? Sure. So, uh, yeah, going back, you know, so the Enneagram might be some sort of expression of how our brains work. Right. So my personal interest, I mean, I'm, I have no, apart from a cursory class in neurobiology, I don't really have much experience dealing with the brain other than having one and uh which i'm sure is a shared experience we all I'm don't sure. just don't yeah. assume I, I, I i'll make an ass out of you and me um all that to say yeah there there are really neat things about how the brain itself is works across organisms right i mean we all are constrained by our neurobiology to some extent and what's what i personally find interesting is just the interface in and of itself, right? I mean, everything that we think, see, hear, experience just in any form whatsoever is essentially just our GUI or graphical user interface because, you know, all stimuli, I mean, any, any sort of site you see is just going to be some disturbance or perturbance in the electromagnetic spectrum that's being picked up by nerve cells that are translated essentially into electrical circuitry that is then interpreted by gray matter and white matter in our brain, which is then transferred wherever it needs to go. All right. So the brain is sort of the interface trying to make sense of all of this. And so what it, to actually see something is to believe it, right? But to actually see something at all in and of itself is pretty wild. 
um, when you really consider what's going on. You know, so to me, at least the world feels no more real than seeing this sort of digital recreation of your face on my computer screen. And so whether or not there's some interference along the way or, or uh, you know, interpretation, and it's just, uh, I don't know, super bizarre. Yeah, that, I mean, I, I went way beyond the horizon of what I actually know there. So, you know, take what I'm saying with a grain of salt, but <laughs> at least there may be a small kernel of biological. Yeah, I'm trying there. to remember who um, who I heard talking about it. It may have been Andrew Huberman, Huberman um, but something about how our what we what we think that we see is only only a portion of it is, is actually us viewing it. Um, it, it. A lot of it has to do with our memory. So we're basically like the the signals are coming in and we're putting it through this filter of all of these constructs that we have learned over the course of our life and we're remembering more than we're actually seeing mm. i don't know if that jives with anything you've learned i mean i guess in 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 some sense right everything is and always will just be consciousness right uh where uh, you know i i find it interesting like just how emotional experience can shift just within a matter of moments, right? You can be experiencing sort of the same thing or better yet, maybe maybe another example might be, you know, you walk up to a waterfall or something and you just have this sort of inspiring experience and you, you know, you feel very connected to that moment and, and it means something. And so everything that you have in that moment and that you're bringing in is sort of tied to what it is, what, what's ha whatever's happening with you as, as an individual. And you can have the very next person walk up to that exact same spot, see the exact same thing that you're seeing and just be, you know, worried about the next text message that they're going to miss or who knows whatever. And so the kind of just the general experience of life and what it is we actually gain from anything and how we experience anything sort of is this battle of internal external forces that there's there's many different ways to change that experience from whether we are picking up the signal and how we're interpreting it and how we manage that but a lot of that does have to do with memory i would think that because i often see memory as more of a like a paintbrush right i mean we sort of paint our memories um, through time if you focus on one memory long enough you're essentially rewriting that memory every single time that pops up and so memory in and of itself is more of an active reconstruction in your brain than it is actually remembering anything that's actually objectively true about what happened in the past. And so if the memory in and of itself is that active and unreliable, then what it means to experience, interpret, and understand anything that has to come from memory also is sort of a nothing shy of, of a miracle that we can have some level of consistency at any degree whatsoever. So to, to answer the question is then uh, of... No yeah. fucking clue. Yeah. How, how can we know anything? <laughs> we can't is essentially what you're saying. No, I, I definitely think we can uh, know things, but it's all within a framework of there's so many questions that I think we take for granted that are the fun things that can keep some people who are a lot more in tune with the questions themselves and a lot more well-read than I am uh, up at night that the interesting, interesting people are saying some interesting things about that. I think it's an interesting thing. Yeah. So we could shift 
topics a little bit. I'm really curious what it's like being a five, growing up with a brother who's a five and a dad who is a five. And a mom who is not. <laughs> yeah. Well, so so my my dad is probably what I would have to point to as the first person and maybe the reason that, I don't know, maybe one of the reasons I'm doing what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I remember he used to play these fun games with me. I think maybe he was excited that I would be relatively curious about some of the things that he would find interesting. I remember as a kid, one of my favorite hobbies was, you know, it's kind of classic, like I would read the encyclopedia and I would just sort of memorize certain things. Like I remember wanting to memorize all the presidents or the list of, at the time, you know, like books of the Bible or whatever it would be. But memorization in and of itself was always a fun task. And I could even recognize that as I got into college, you know, taking, you know, anatomy and physiology and, you know, it's like, well, we have 206 bones. All right, I'll see if I can have them all memorized by tomorrow. Right. You know, so it's just like, I need to know every bone. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah you're totally like everybody else. <laughs> well, if anybody just sits and goes over the list about anywhere from 50 to 150 times uh, over Maybe like an eight true. to 12 hour period, right? I mean, so it's more, it's more or less just having the, I do, I do the, think the drive to care about memorizing. Things. I mean, I've, I've memorized like half of my kids, children's books, you know? Sure. Sure. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. You, you, you repeat the things that many times. I think it would be, uh, I would have to be, uh, atypical to not have kept it, but no, I'll, you know, so, but I, I think I would do that, um, pretty early on where I would start saying things about the planets or whatever, because I would read his, he would have popular science magazines and I would, you know, sort of find them and read and, whatever I could. And, uh, and he would, I think he got excited about that. Cause I remember there was a game he would play, which was uh, stump dad. Essentially, if I could tell him something that he claimed he didn't know, he would give me like 50 cents or a dollar or something. <laughs> and so then every day I would have to try to stump him with something that he had never heard of before. And like, he would play these little games and that was an encouragement, I think about like sort of this interest led learning or just curiosity that I think he, he at least, I don't know, maybe, maybe he acknowledged that to some, to some extent because he values that. And I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And you still play that today just against as well. <laughs> You walk in and start telling him things that you're stumping him on. Yeah, I I I, I ask him for money every single time. <laughs> yeah, so. no, that's that's really interesting. I, I mean, I would definitely remember you guys having a really strong. I mean, you guys have always had a really strong connection when it comes to science in a way that I don't think I took interest in in science in general and uh, until much later in life and into my adult years. Because when I was a kid, a kid and a teenager, I was too busy being a little shit. So like I couldn't I couldn't uh, couldn't stop long enough to learn about anything that actually had any substance. But I, um, I think that I definitely remember you guys having that really strong dynamic and um, him kind of always pushing you in that way and, and definitely being excited. It kind of brings me to um, uh, my, my brain kind of jumps back to um, one of the responses in a past episode. I think it was on the parenting episode um, and where uh, someone was talking about how they, they were so excited about their kid getting old enough to where all of a sudden they're starting to get interested and wants to ask questions about things and is interested. And you've talked about that, like, uh, Josiah, where like, you know, having kids being able to communicate enough to where like now their curiosity is like, how does the moon work and how does fire work? And like, and you have these answers, like it's the other side of being a five, right? Like 
you get to have you get to peek and stoke the flame of their curiosity while also like getting so much out of it and like like 10 percent of the time i have those answers most of the time i don't right (laughs) i only have google my 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 five-year-old every pretty much every single night he's asking me questions about like how hurricanes work and tornadoes and snakes and whales and just all of the stuff and i'm like i'll give you my best guess but uh gonna have to google that later pretty sure my dad did that but he never <laughs> said the word yes he's like here's the answer <laughs> there, there there have been a few things that i learned from my dad that i've i've just had to make slight adjustments to right you know <laughs> um yeah and it's uh, yeah yeah but but to your point, yeah, the that transfer of being able to move into that sort of wise sage mode is it can be really meaningful as a five for sure. I mean, it's definitely probably dad's way of really connecting with you too, right? Like that was like you were saying, kind of alluding to um, getting. I think that was your point. You're getting to was that I, I don't know. Once you start talking as a child, I feel like fives probably have this disconnect that's like okay, how do I connect with this human being in, in ways that is meaningful? And well, some fives anyway, some fives are more maybe in touch with their emotions and healthy and healthier places. And there's those of us who are not. And, um, and I think that uh, definitely just from on the parenting episode, seeing the responses in the comments, I know this is a struggle. Um, I can't obviously speak for myself, but I know I read this a lot about people being like, yeah, it was really hard. It's really hard for me to com- like, find even in relationships like finding that that middle ground and how to communicate and how to do that how to find that place where you are relating in a real and intimate way Um, and questions curiosity learning that kind of thing has always been such an easy place and definitely was kind of a staple of our household for sure and and learning all kinds of things and me and you played music together and um, learned those things together as well and we were just kind of always pushing ourselves and trying to grow and learn um, together which may not have happened the way that it did if we weren't both fives and really <laughs> push ourselves to the point of hating each other. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like uh, we, our fists haven't met each other's faces in quite some time. So I think we're doing not since you got big enough to pick me up off the ground by my neck. And I was like, you win <laughs> no longer the big brother. I will, I will relinquish that. <laughs> but I, you know, it's funny you, you mentioned curiosity, right? I mean, I think that's, that's been my biggest challenge going through life in general right is finding uh, ways to relate to just people around us i mean i i don't think that that's a unique problem i think that that's uh to some extent uh you know there's a subset of the population that finds it a bit more i don't know easy than the other than uh, the other portion but one thing that i have been able to recognize at least in the, the last few years has just been the connection via curiosity. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe that's a five strength and trying to wield that as much as possible, but I don't think it really matters what the personality type, you know, people have interests, people have curiosities and trying to connect on the level of enthusiasm and curiosity as a general concept rather than like the specific topics, because I know that it was very difficult for me when I would hear a topic that I wasn't directly interested in, yeah, you could just sort of tune out and and not pay it any attention and assume that there's no connection there. But then to realize that somebody is, you know, there's going to be someone in this world who's so into exhaust manifolds and how that, like, whatever it may be, yeah. um, or they're just really into, you know, how 
you know, color and form and, you know, sort of beauty expression and whatever it may be, you know, for any given person, but to recognize sort of the humanity and the curiosity and interest-led understanding of the world um, that may not necessarily reflect our own interests. I don't know, maybe that's, uh, I mean, if you, if you, if you tout that as a primary trait of a five, I think that's, a, that's actually a very strong basis to get to know and connect with people. I'm not necessarily, I'm also not the person to offer advice on interpersonal relationships. So <laughs> I'm talking to you from a, from an abandoned room in a, in a, in a warehouse. No. Yeah. I've, I've found that as well. That's something that I had to learn more recently was feeding the curiosity. I, I feel like to your point, Jesse, that is an innate human trait. Talk to any five-year-old and they're curious about everything. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that as we grow up, it's sort of, it can, it can get beaten out of us in a way. And I don't know if, if fives maybe are, um, more apt to hold on to it for longer, um, or not, but I do know that there are, you know, depending on the environment that we grow up in, there, there definitely is a way to foster that and to keep that going. Um, and, and for a while, you know, I was, I was intensely curious about a few specific things. But when I finally started to actually care about other people again, that's when my curiosity really expanded and, and I started to learn how to use it as a tool of connection more. Um, and that's still something that, especially after, you know, all of us being isolated for the last, you know, almost two years now, uh, that's, that's a muscle that is atrophying quite a bit. But when I was out in the world more, um, practicing that, um, just if, if you can, because it's, it's kind of, this is, this is just my observation and, and speculation here, but it, it seems like genuine kind of intense curiosity has become rare enough in this day and age that when you come across it, it's almost like it sort of snaps you out of something or wakes you up a little bit. And, and when you come across someone who's genuinely curious about you and interested in you, you are drawn to those people. And so that, I, I think you're right in that, that probably is a great tool that we can wield as fives to make that connection where we might not have the skills in other areas to come about it from a different direction. Mm. Yeah. My 57 blueprints for exhaust manifolds, I'll, you know, I'll spend the next seven and a half hours, right. You know, <laughs> no, I think that that says something a little bit different about my neuro makeup than it does being a five. Um, however. There's, um, there's a lot to be said. I think I'm still, I'm, I haven't necessarily put together a full picture here, but it is interesting to talk to people sort of within my very small botany field or biology field, but then you get into the sciences in general. And something that I have personally experienced is that you can see the jadedness that does come from people who have had sort of their curiosity beaten out of them to some extent. But I would say that more often than not, my experience has actually been, at least maybe in the biological field, I don't know, maybe the biologists are the ones that are, I don't know if we're just drinking more beer or what's happening, but they seem to be at least more often than not, you know, you, you, you'll meet somebody who, you know, I might, I might meet somebody who has received some pretty high accolades and they're very well respected sort of the world over, but just sitting down and having a conversation 
ultimately it's just them getting incredibly psyched and jazzed about a few things that are just i mean that it's ultimately that excitement that is what is making them go into work every day um and to be around that many enthusiastic learners is a very i don't know i consider that a very special privilege but it's a i don't think that it's exclusive to any type of science or academia it's just a matter of because uh, i mean like i said you'll see just as much of the same people that it does turn into a job it's overly formalized and it's um whatever but you know ultimately like i said before you know science is driven by these not only these cognitively biased machines, but we are just curious people too, you know? So, I mean, at, at the, at the core of every scientist really is just, you know, that kid that grew up collecting insects or looking around at things and wondering what's going on, you know, just a matter of whether that's sort of focused outward and, you know, and, and you get your, your astrobiologists or, um, or you get your astrophysicists or you get, you know, people who are interested in really tiny things and have great minds for conceptualizing abstract ideas. And, you know, essentially those are some of our best mathematicians. And, but ultimately that does come from just a curious place of just cool. How does that work? And, you know, to, to try to have a, uh, have a tool to where we do formalize that and attempt to take our own bias out of it um, is, is useful. However, you know, like I said, ultimately it's, it is just people who are looking around going awesome. What's going on there? That's yeah, it's, it's, it's a very nice thing, but you know, it, it, I don't think that, the, like I said, the, you know, the, I don't think a scientist is a special person. It's just a person who's fortunate enough to get to keep asking questions and trying to answer them. You know, that same curiosity and that same sort of excitement can be carried over into quite literally anything. And, 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 and it's a, joy to see because you know it, it is recognizable in nearly any profession and nearly any sort of lifestyle and person that you meet it's just a matter of you know what's their thing and so you know like for my mom i mean my mom loves making jewelry and being creative and doing these things but there's still a lot of a lot of curiosity that has to go into what it means to be in this world interact with people and create in general i, I mean it's why it's why it shows like how it's made was so popular i love that show Mm. Such a great show. So this this is where I'm not I'm not speaking from any sort of place of knowledge or authority because uh, enneagrams I'm not sure like what a tinkerer should be. Is that the scientist? Is that a five? Or is that getting into other enneagram types? Um, I'm not Engineers. sure if that's a specific type so much. I know that um, my guess it would be anything inside of the head triad would be more apt to be a, a tinkerer. So that would be like a five, six, or seven yeah. um, who just like to analyze things and um, and think about things. Yeah, that would be my guess. But also, uh, Cody and I are not Enneagram experts either. <laughs> We've made that very, very clear. <laughs> the, only, the only thing that we're really experts on are uh, our individual experiences as a fox. <laughs> well, I, I will treat you as such. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I have, a, I have a question, kind of putting you on, a, on the spot here a little bit, Jesse. Sure. I'm, I'm curious, from a, a layperson's perspective, uh, a, someone who's not spending all day, every day in the sciences, Cody and I have talked about this, like he and I both um, got more interested in the sciences later in life. And I know for me, it was because of how I grew up in religion and how um, there was uh, a bias against science in, in a lot of ways. Um, but I, and so I, I didn't really come to appreciate science until really, I think my, my 
late, late 20s or, or like early 30s. And knowing what I know about myself now, I probably would have taken a more scientific career path. Although I, I love what I do now and there's there's some science to it. There's like an art and a science to it. Um, but especially in, in, in today's world, like trying to make sense of things just can be so difficult to do. Um, and it's, it seems to be getting increasingly difficult to do. I'm wondering if you have any advice on tools that we can, that we can learn, skills that we can learn specifically that we can use to take a more scientific approach to gathering information and, and learning and, and trying to figure out what sure. it is we can know. I'm not sure about where the wisdom lies in what I'm about to say, but at least my first instinct is we tend to learn more by being wrong than we are by being right or correct. So there's a lot of things that, and I, and I don't know how universal this necessarily is, but at least in the daily life, it's really easy to see something assume we know how it works based on maybe previous observations, but not really putting that to any sort of test to see how wrong that may be. And, you know, there's there's this classic sort of example that in, you know, the old world or I'm, you know, more of the Eastern hemisphere, less the, less, you know, North America, Latin America, everything in the Western hemisphere. But it, uh, there was this sort of concept that, you know, every swan was white, right? And I, I'm pretty sure this is more wives' tale than anything. So take what it take from it what you will. But you know, you can walk through life and see a white swan. Think, ah, yeah, makes sense. That's coherent. That's consistent. See another white swan. Yes, that uh, exactly. We know what's up. You see another white swan. See, we know. But all it takes is to see the one swan that's either black or mixed of any sort of anything that's just not a white swan. And all it takes is the one instance to completely overturn that idea, right? And I do think that generally, as people, we have a tendency to feel comfortable with being right. And not that this is the scientific method, right? So the scientific method in and of itself is a very specific just set of tools to basically try to hopefully lay down a hypothesis and see what's going on. Um, and when I say hypothesis, I'm being very specific there about a, a, a descriptive mechanism by which something that you may be happening. So not a guess. So a guess is a guess, right? That's an observation and you can have guesses about it. But when you actually have a, a proposed descriptive mechanism for which that thing is occurring, that's a testable hypothesis. And we can see, well, if, if the hypothesis is invalid, then we might expect this result. So we, we use very specific terms about reject and fail to reject. We don't accept hypotheses and we don't validate hypotheses. And you can never test a hypothesis to be true. You don't validate hypotheses, but what we can do in science is invalidate them. And through that invalidation, because it's easy to say that this is how something doesn't work, it's very difficult to say that this is exactly how something does work. Because in many cases, there are a whole suite of possibilities that can end up giving you a very similar result. And what I do think we have a tendency to do as people is to find the we make assumptions and we tend to want to be correct about things. And so to see something happen, propose some sort of mechanism, whether or not we're formally doing this or not, 
But then to then verify that by saying, oh, yes, this other thing happened. And I see that that's, that's also correct. And this is also correct. And, and then we feel very comfortable and safe and sound in that. And that can lead to a lot of the problems that we see, you know, social media, internet bubbles and confirmation bias and all of this. Um, actually be comfortable with ambiguity, because I guess if, if, if anything, the more I am in science, the more I'm completely content to say I have no clue. And that has been, I guess, the number one skill is to be okay with saying I have no clue about how this happens. I find this interesting. I've heard this. I've heard this. But, you know, um, something I try not to do because it can be too annoying to so many people when you sort of bet hedging too much where you're like, eh, let's take this with a grain of salt. But, you know, I've heard this and I've heard this. And, and, and that uncertainty can come across as being like, oh, well, we just don't know. We can know things, but it's also just really important to understand that even the things that seem to be valid in the moment, all it takes is that one instance of that not being the case to really learn more than we've ever known before. So I think we can learn so much more by being wrong and to be, I don't know, I guess courageous as a society and as a species to be comfortable with not knowing things and understanding that we can challenge our ideas and learn more by being incorrect. Well, we are, uh, we, we've taken up an hour of your time. Um, so Cody, before we hop off here, Cody, was there anything else you wanted to chat about with your brother in front of a live audience? <laughs> um, not that we couldn't do in another episode. I've got some thoughts now. I have some things that I'm kind of squirreling away in the old noggin right now. So I, 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 want to, I also want to let some things kind of uh, percolate for a little bit. I think that we could definitely have a more uh, structured conversation out of a lot of the things that were said uh, out of this. And I will be uh, listening back over this and editing it. So I will have even more thoughts that I can write down. So I think that I think there's a lot of really good material here for the basis of other conversations we can kind of kind of jump into from from here. I think it's a really good place to kind of a good springboard i think so um yeah it's good good to introduce you finally to uh the broader audience that we've been talking about you to um <laughs> and uh, good to be here. we're not we're not uh talking behind your back anymore you're officially part of the <laughs> conversation so cool well let's uh let's end this <laughs> all right jesse thank you Josiah. so much sir yeah <laughs> It's lovely being here. I mean, it's lovely to see your face. And uh, Cody, it's great, great as always. You know, I'll, 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 I'll see you in the holidays. You know, yeah, yeah here in a couple weeks, hopefully, I actually get yeah. to get to give you a real hug. Well, thanks everyone. Until next time, take care. Until next time, cheers. Hey, it's Cody, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode and you're the type of person who likes helping others, would you do us a favor and share it with other people like you? If you found value in this conversation, they will too. If anything in this conversation has resonated with you, or if you have any further thoughts or questions, I want to invite you to join our community of other people like you and continue the conversation at Enneagram5.com.